Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Dot com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting guest. You know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, finance, all that good stuff that we like to hear. We're going to be talking about the importance of timing. We're going to be talking about dealing with COVID and dealing with cycles, also about acquisitions uh, and also raising money and, and, and building something, you know, really meaningful. So. I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Christian Geyser. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So originally born there in, in Germany, and uh, you grew up literally in the hospitality industry. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? That's correct. I actually uh, had the pleasure of uh, growing up in a small family-run hotel business in the beautiful uh, Black Forest in the southwestern part of Germany. It's a very idyllic uh, setting. Um, and uh, that came along with, uh, you know, uh, mornings, lunchtimes, evenings, spending the time in the hotel. So early on, I had um, the pleasure of being fully exposed to what it means to, to being a hotelier. Um, and uh, I'm very grateful for that experience. I mean, that's a, there's a lot of sacrifices eh, when you're in the hospitality industry. So I'm sure that you were able to see that. You were able to see the whole experience, too, and the dedication and, and, and the commitment, no? So uh, how was that for you as well? 100%. I mean, ultimately, it's um, a very emotional industry. It's probably one of the most emotional products that, that you can imagine because when you travel somewhere as a guest for business or for leisure, you have a lot of expectations, yeah, and it's a detail-driven business. Uh, and you need to make sure you, you match that uh, expectation. I've learned a lot from my mother and my father in this context because there are always things that can happen that you haven't anticipated, right? And you need to stay calm and need to be prepared to, to step in and improvise. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a 24-7 job. I, I learned early on what will be very important for me in what I'm doing today. And, uh, you know, definitely the, as you say, 24-7 job, you know, entrepreneurship, you know, is also about that. It's, it's always about thinking how you're resolving whatever problems you have in front of you. And, and it's tough to really disconnect that. Now, I guess for you, 
the idea of coming up with problem solving, you know, really came up early on. You know, while you were in university, you were literally paying yourself with importing iPhones. So tell us about this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, um, you know, we realized that uh, when Steve Jobs launched the iPhone 1, and it was still the case for the iPhone 2, that uh, Apple first rolled out the product in the US and in the UK. So there was like a four to six months time gap uh, until you could um, buy that product actually in uh, continental Europe. And uh, you were able to, to buy the iPhone in the US or in the UK, then you had to jailbreak it. That was the, the code word back then because there was a provider lock in there. Uh, and then you could sell it for a 2x markup in Germany via eBay or other platforms. And that's what we did. I think we sold several hundred of them. Um, and that basically financed our entire university program. Um, and I'm very happy that, that we did this. We actually sold the very last uh, iPhone uh, to, the, to the dean of our university. <laughs> it was a nice anecdote. Um, and uh, we learned a lot from that because ultimately um, that was a very narrow time window and it was obviously an arbitrage business. So not sustainable, uh, but it helped us, you know, uh, get the initial uh, funding for the university, but also for our first uh, entrepreneurial adventures. Now, it's really interesting here because you got the taste of entrepreneurship at that point, but you didn't go right into it. I mean, you you did test a little bit. You did Goldman Sachs. You did McKinsey, you know, kind of like their analyst programs, you know, that they had. But but why did you do that? You know, it sounds like you really already got the taste of entrepreneurship with the cherry on top with selling to the dean. So why why, you know, exploring corporate? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think to me, uh, I was always fascinated by the world of investment banking and consulting. And um, yeah, I always had this um, visionary imagination of how it is like to work, uh, for example, at Goldman Sachs behind the scenes doing all these big blockbuster deals. Uh, and um, I had the pleasure, for example, to take a look behind the scenes in their private equity division. The deals that you're working on are massive and, and you know, you move, you're part of moving a very big needle. And um, I'm very grateful for that experience, but I also learned that myself, I'm probably better suited in an environment where I can build things from scratch, uh, which takes a lot more improvisation, you know, convincing people, investors, employees, partners. And uh, when you get to this environment, it's often about optimizing more smaller details and or financial arbitrage. Um, and ultimately for me, the, the question that I then asked myself is, okay, do I see myself in that environment long-term or Am I okay with, um, you know, taking a lot of risk? And that's what I did because I had an offer to join both of them after university. And you can imagine what, uh, especially my Italian mother told me that, uh, why are you so stupid to decline a safe job in one of the most prestigious banks? Um, but uh, in hindsight, it was the right decision. So why, why did you decide, to, you know, to decline, you know, that offer? I mean, what was that conviction that you had that made you say no? Yeah, so my co-founder um, and myself, we spent um, a few months in Silicon Valley, actually, before uh, we were supposed to start there. And then we 
developed the initial idea for our first company called uh, Bonial, uh, or better known in Germany as Kaufta, which is essentially a classified business for driving people to local retail stores. So we helped um, consumers to never miss out on the greatest offers from Carrefour, um, Lidl, Media Mart, so the equivalents of Walmart, Target, and, and Macy's in Europe. Um, and we just felt that this was a pretty big idea. Uh, to be completely honest, we were super naive in the beginning. We were, didn't not we did not know what we were getting into, um, especially dealing with very large scale uh, retail companies, which are the main customers of that business. Um, but I think that was also our biggest strength that we approached this with a so-called beginner's mind, and that we didn't pay. Too much attention to all the challenges because otherwise we probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. So I guess in this case, what ended up being the business model of the company? How are you guys making money? So the business model is actually very simple. So we basically transformed um, the offers that you know from let's say Walmart, Target, or Macy's, these big old school print leaflets. We transformed them into a format that is attractive and and super convenient to use for mobile smartphone users. And then we created a centralized uh, app experience um, where you never miss out on the greatest offers. So we essentially provide an aggregator from a consumer standpoint. And then for the retail companies, we sold that reach to them through a what we called cost per engagement model. So it was a mix between a cost per click or a cost per mill. So it's essentially a much more efficient form of advertising. Um, and uh, because we managed to launch the business basically in a similar timeline to when uh, Apple really doubled down on the App Store, um, that was a huge push for us in terms of organic reach. And we managed to build a really profitable business right away. So for building this business too, I mean, you guys, you guys raised some money. So. Um... Typically, the first company is tough to raise money, you know, for. So how was that experience for you guys? I mean, it was super tough. Uh, you know, we started in 2008 and we were super happy that we managed to raise 150,000 euros only from angels for the first year in operation, for which nowadays probably no entrepreneur would be happy to lift a finger anymore in the Berlin ecosystem. I'm exaggerating, obviously, but um, that has actually pro proven to be a really good thing for us because we had to be super disciplined in monetary terms early on. And then we went on to raise one more round, I think only one and a half million euros in additional money. And then we got the business to profitability. So within just three years, the business was producing cash in Europe. And that proved out to be, you know, a very good thing for us ultimately. And I think it's very similar to today, you know, when capital resources are scarce, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to grow your business, to finance your business outside of pure equity financing. So what were some of those uh, lessons, you know, around this? Because I'm sure that there's a lot of founders now with the macro environment that, uh, you know, they're finding it difficult to, to raise money. So what piece of advice do you have for them? So a few thoughts. Number one, uh, just be super focused on delivering a very strong um, sales process and really got, get sale, strong salespeople on board to, to close deals yourself. And I have been involved in that myself in, in several deals. So 
you know, um, we had the fortune of uh, getting a very experienced set of sales on board very quickly. So I toured throughout the country with him. I learned from him how to do sales. He learned from me how the internet and uh, the iPhone ecosystem works. Um, so get your hands dirty yourself. You're the number one salesperson as a founder and as the CEO. And uh, if you have customers financing your business, that's obviously the best uh, outcome. So that's number one. Number two, um, find ways with your partners to finance your business. So, for example, one of our investors was uh, the venture capital um, arm of Deutsche Telekom or T-Mobile, uh, as they are known in the U.S. Uh, and back then, we had the possibility to push our reach through um, their mobile subscriber base. So they had uh, an app push program once a month, you know, you could send out a text message to all of their subscribers and we use that and this was part of the reasons why we managed to become the number one most downloaded um, app in the german app store for like two weeks in a row uh, so that's the second example so work with your partners your suppliers often they have possibilities to provide you with reach or with um, you know growth ammunition that you can structure in a way that you don't have to pay up front for and then number three is just like, you know, be focused on every cent, every euro um, that you can save early on. That is tough. Yeah. And often involves, you know, being tough on yourself uh, initially. Um, and those are the three main outcomes uh, that I would recommend to anyone. But I mean, in your guys' case, you ended up being quite successful. So how was that the experience of going from one cycle to the next? Yeah, just to be clear, that was, uh, I yeah, you're right. Um, so that was, um, that was then for expanding the business globally. Um, so we actually um, sold the company over various stages to um, a group called Axel Springer. And uh, the business is doing very well. Um, I think one of the things that I would probably have in hindsight done differently is to expand more quickly in other foreign markets um, because you need to reach that time window. Um, especially, you know, when, when the app stores were very young, it's a bit similar to Google 10 to 20 years ago, you can build up a lot of organic reach for nothing. Yeah. Where nowadays you have to pay a lot of money to get the same attention and exposure to users. And when you have reached that organic branding, it's so much easier, um, in an app store environment. And it's the same probably for all new platforms that are emerging. Now, in your case, um, there was, you know, obviously here you had to deal with tough negotiators, uh, big accounts in the retail space, the large retailers. So what kind of lessons did you learn around negotiation that perhaps, you know, served you very well when you came to deal making later on? 100%. So uh, just a few uh, thoughts on this. Number one, you have to think of path dependency, right? It's like playing chess. When you make a move today, what impact does that have? Does that move have in, you know, several years down the road? Do you open up new possibilities or do you close some? So, for example, pricing is a huge component. Uh, the retailers are, can be very aggressive uh, when it comes to negotiating price because they are the masters in, in that art of negotiation. So sometimes you also have to walk away, right? If a deal. Um, is on the table that doesn't match your criteria and that hurts short term 
but in the long run to, for example, keep your price level stable uh, can provide to be very meaningful. So that's number one. Number two, I think is what we learned. You need to invest in training and process. Yeah, And um, some people are born negotiators, but yeah, often, you know, when you invest in, in training, uh, this can have a huge outcome uh, on your bottom line. Uh, and again, it's a short-term investment that probably hurts, but in the long run, it will pay out nicely. Um, and then the third component is what we learned, you know, especially when you deal with large organizations as a very young, innovative company. And we're talking about a time in which most people in the retail world still thought that this thing called internet and e-commerce will disappear. It was just like a short-term thing. It's hard to imagine today, but that's what it was. Um, that um, often you have to find different angles to get inside an organization and find your champion. Yeah. So um, big B2B enterprise sales is just so different in that context. And uh, you often need 20, maybe 25 or even 30 attempts to, to make a deal happen. And you need to have the perseverance and the patience uh, to keep going. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. Uh, a good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. So in your guys' case, you know, as you were alluding to, this ended up being a majority investment from actual Springer that ended up, um, you know, allowing you guys to uh, reach, you know, to that liquidity event as founders. So what happened next? You know, what was that uh, transition into the rocket ship that you're writing today called NUMA? Yeah, great question. So I decided to leave the business after nine years operationally. Then I took uh, just a little break. I went to China for a month, to Japan for a month, just to discover, you know, the culture and the ecosystem there. And uh, I think the moment when I left the business, it was clear to me that I want to build something again because I love the energy, I love, you know, the mission of, of building an ambitious um, company with, with a very driven team. And of course, I, you know, I have to admit that I'm also a little bit addicted to the adrenaline that you get uh, when doing so. So I took a little bit of time, but then I got inspired by all the problems that I ran into when traveling, especially due to my family uh, heritage. So uh, we realized that there are three main problems in the hospitality industry, right? So number one, when you travel nowadays, you either have the choice between the big hotel bunkers, the Hiltons or the Marriott, or the individual Airbnb hosts. Um, so we saw a wide space opportunity to combine the best of both worlds. So 
you know, home away from home, combined with the standards of the hotel. So we're essentially building with Luma, that is the company, um, a um, a brand on the supply side of short-term rentals. So think of what Hilton has done for hotels, we're doing for the world of Airbnb. The second problem that we saw is that there's way not enough inventory for that product from a supply perspective, especially driven by regulation. Yeah, so cities like Berlin, Paris, Barcelona have lost 50-60% of the supply overnight due to increasing regulation. So what Numa is doing is repositioning old hotels, hostels, commercial real estate into that use case, 100% asset light. Our real estate partners finance the vast lion's share of the underlying capex. Um, and today we have about uh, 4,300 units uh, under management, so rooms or apartments. Um, about half of them are live in Europe's AAA neighborhoods, so Berlin, Rome, Barcelona, um, you name it. And then the third problem that we saw is um, that the industry is stuck in the Stone Ages when it comes to technology. Right? So about 70% of the process landscape can be automated or improved with technology. And Numa is inspired by Tesla in this context that we're building a meta software layer on top of the physical infrastructure. And so we're improving mainly three things. Number one is the guest experience. So check-in, check-out is very smooth. You don't have a reception on site where you need to answer things that they should already know. Two is top-line improvements. So we're often able to improve the top line of a given building by 20 or 30 percent and then three is um, opex process improvements and all of that um, you know has led to a, a very strong growth and underlying performance um, despite all the challenges that the industry had to face over the last few years yeah because i'm sure that COVID was not easy for you guys how were you able to overcome that yeah COVID was in hindsight the best stress test that we could have imagined. So just to give you a quick context, we started the company and launched the first property in October 2019. And then a few months later, we had, I think, the first four or five properties live and then COVID hit us. Um, but I immediately had this feeling that this is a huge opportunity for us, right? Because in our case, um, the model also makes it possible that you can rent out the units for what we call long-term stays. So people that stay for like one or two or three months. Um, and for our product, there is a massive need in that market. So while um, the industry faced a massive shock in short-stay demand, so tourism, business travel was completely evaporated, we switched overnight to this other model and managed to get to 90% in occupancy. Uh, and we really, you know, we created a war room mentality. So every day we had uh, the major team members in the same uh, call and room, and we really um, made it happen um, that we achieved very strong results. So essentially we turned that to become the biggest proof point of our business model and in turn managed to really get a lot of trust uh, from the real estate community because they saw, hey, in the biggest crisis since World War II in that industry, this product still provided a very stable cash flow outcome. Um, so we liked it, and that's the reason why we have been able to grow so quickly. 
Of course, it was not easy because every, you know, several weeks you had to change and adapt course a little bit because, you know, depending on the region or the city, politicians uh, change their mind quite often what is allowed and what not to. So I think we had five times we had to pull out this playbook of switching from that model to the other one. Um, but that created a strong level of agility and um, flexibility in our culture, which I think was very beneficial that in the end, we were quite lucky that we had to go through this early on, right? It would have been very different if it was in a 10-year-old organization. Obviously, in this case, you guys have raised the money again. How much money have you guys raised to date? So uh, we have raised uh, a little bit more than uh, 60 million um, to date. Um, we've been very capital efficient um, and we've mainly raised from technology investors uh, and um, players from the real estate world who have uh, you know, a very strong network and can help us grow the business. So what did you do differently this time around when it came to raising money? What did I do differently? I mean, uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, having been through that uh, journey a few times before, uh, it was, of course, a lot easier to prepare for what is in our control. Uh, that's the mantra that I tried to live by. Okay, you cannot change COVID, you cannot change the interest rate environment, but there's like a hundred things that you have in your control, what you can focus on. So what did we do differently? We, of course, thought of all the major objections that uh, investors might have for the model and thought through, okay, how can we address them? Sometimes it's better to address them proactively um, and to outline that we are aware of several risk factors, right? And then just make sure that uh, investors know we, we're thinking through all these components. So that's number one. Number two is, especially in this market environment, you need to build a very large funnel. Yeah. And uh, it often comes down to also finding the right time on their end, right? Sometimes they've reached the end of a fund cycle. Um, sometimes they need to preserve the cash for portfolio companies. Um, you know this better than me, but I think that's always important to hit the right timing also on the investor side and understand their agenda and what it's important Again, and that's maybe a third point, to give them the ammunition, because often you have one or two people in the organization, in an investor um, org that like you and the business, but then they need to push it through internally. So what kind of ammunition can we give them content-wise to, to make that happen? Um, and there's a lot of things uh, we have learned. Let me add one last thing. I think also here, especially with our first investors, you know, we have made sure that we know them very well um, and that we also understand how they act in times when it's not just um, sunshine in the market and that has proven to be the right choice because uh, all of our investors in this context, you know, have a long-term sustainable view. Um, and I always like to say that um, getting an investor on board is a stronger bond than marriage because you can't divorce your cap table, right? So you really need to know who you're dealing with. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was very happy because, you know, during COVID, even though it went well for us, you know, from the outside, everybody looked at us and said like, oh, I mean, you must be in such a, you know, 
bad shape as a company and it's probably not going well. The reality was it was the opposite, but you know, from the outside, it's just often for a brain not easy to understand because you need to think through all the um, market dependencies. Uh, and our investors proved out to be a very strong support in that time frame. So when it came to vision, you know, and we're talking about raising money here, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, Christian, where the vision of NUMA is fully realized. What does that world look like? I love that question. So waking up uh, in this world would mean that NUMA has a huge fan base of um, consumers that come to our destination to get inspired whenever and wherever they want to travel. And especially when focusing on new emerging travel use cases. So think of uh, vacation or what the industry calls leisure, so the mix of business and leisure. Uh, and we have built up a ideally global um, supply power base um, for them to you know, dive into and experience the world's greatest neighborhoods, ranging from, you know, the alternative and trendy parts of Berlin down to the iconic history places in the Piazza San Marco in Venice, uh, Italy. Uh, and ultimately, our vision is that both the way how we work and how we travel is changing dramatically uh, in the sense of Consumers have more flexibility. You can do more uh, from a remote work perspective. And also when you think ahead, um, you know, people talk a lot about uh, the impact of artificial intelligence in their business. But actually, I think on hospitality, the biggest impact is indirect because people will just simply work less. Yeah? Machines will take over more of our um, workload. So in 10, 20 years, you know, you have more time available. People will get older. You know, people will probably work less. Uh, Asia is opening up. There will be a huge consumer and tra tourism influx from Asia into Europe, for example. So you will have a much higher demand for tourism and for entertainment. And uh, we want to be, you know, the favorite companion for, for that use case. Uh, and that's, you know, where I think uh, the, the puck is going in the market. And and I guess as we're talking here about the future, wh where is travel going to, you know, what, what where is it heading? Because, I mean, we've experienced so many changes now, you know, post the COVID uh, world. So so where is travel going? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I personally think um, that, you know, also when you look at survey data from millennials or Gen Z, that um, the last thing they will save on is travel and experiences so it's frequently ranked as their one of their biggest priorities yeah, in terms of where to allocate their budget on so the industry is looking at a very bright uh, growth outlook in general i think th what the industry has to work on is how to integrate uh, tourism and travel more sustainably with um, the context of living in the city right so how can you balance um, the need for visiting and discovering cities, for example, with uh, the local neighbors uh, in town? So sustainability is a big component um, and also solving, you know, the real estate or housing crisis in that context. And this has to go hand in hand. But I think overall, if you look at where the market is going, there will be a big 
shift in terms of travel use cases. So obviously, it's no secret that business travel will be um, significantly lower than pre-COVID. But uh, if you look at the growth pockets, so work from anywhere, um, mix of business and leisure, or uh, longer length of stays, that will, from our perspective, in most categories, probably overcompensate the, the lack of um, the initial short-stay business travel. So we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. Imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back to that time where you were thinking about, you know, maybe corporate was not for you, you know, after your stint with importing iPhones, you know, and you are now, oh my God, you know, I think I, I like this entrepreneurial thing. Uh, and you're able to have a chat with that younger Christian and you're able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, only one. What would that be and why, given what you know now? It's a brilliant question. Uh, if I could travel back in time uh, to meet my younger self, I, I would tell myself that um, ultimately think through the path dependency of your big decisions, right? Um, so for example, the investors that you get on board or the partnerships or the M&A deals, whatever it is, um, big, big items. So, you know, when you make the decision today, which additional opportunities does that create? And also, which opportunities does that close uh, in the future down the road? So I'm not talking about tomorrow, but in a few years ahead. Uh, and I think that um, that's a very important lesson uh, to learn. And I try to implement this every day uh, today when we have big decisions in front of us. So for example, to give you just a, a very simple one, just taking the investor who gives you the highest valuation is not necessarily the smartest choice yeah? because there will always be things that deviate from the plan or so-called black swan moments. Right? <laughs> In the case of NUMA, we had three or four of them already. Right? You had COVID, you had the interest rate shakedown, and then you had the Ukraine war, which had energy prices skyrocket in Europe. Um, so um, how do you find the right partner who is side by side with you for the next 10 to 15 years? And thinking through that path dependency is, is critical in my opinion. So I love that, Christian. So for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, hit me up on uh, LinkedIn uh, or sh shoot me an email via um, cg at uh, numastays.com. And I'm always open and happy to help um, if I can. And uh, yeah, hit me up anytime. Amazing. Well, hey, easy enough. Well, Christian, it has been an honor to have you with us on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so, so much for taking the time. Alejandro, it's been a big pleasure. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.